giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing the Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is Jordan Burke, CEO and founder of Rep One Strength. Jordan, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chad, how's it going? So you're involved in a variety of different things and you've had a really interesting path and your main focus today is Rep One Strength. Why don't we get started by having you tell folks uh, exactly what Rep One Strength is doing and we'll go from there. So Rep One Strength is a training automation platform for sports teams and gyms. So essentially what we do is we have hardware and we have software that strength coaches put on each training station, usually power racks where their athletes do barbell training and Athletes will come in, they'll lift weights, our sensors will track how well they're doing it. The tablet on the rack will bring them through their workout, tell them to go up or down and wait, how much time to rest, how many sets to do, how many reps to do, things like that. And in the background, coaches are uploading their roster and their workout programs, and they kind of let the gym operate. They automate their weight room. And the the reason why we're getting a lot of uh, attention from teams early on is because modern training methodologies can be really complicated. Things like instructing your athletes based on how fast they're moving is really tough to scale. So when we say we're a training automation company, the long-term vision of this product in this company is we help coaches automate complex tasks. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, I'm familiar with the concept of lifting and I'm, but and I'm familiar with the concept of strength training, but you know, your users or, or target market, the people who are actually doing this are the coaches and you, and you use the word sort of teams. So tell me a little bit more about the world in which your product exists and how you got into it. Sure. You know, we have one of those products, which is common in B2B companies that, it's really hard, I think, to grasp the need for if you're not in our kind of audience. And so it definitely needs some explaining. Essentially, we're lucky in that we know exactly who our customer is. It's a strength and conditioning coach or the assistant strength and conditioning coach of either a sports team or a training facility. And the need basically arises from the fact that you know if you have, let's say you're a football coach or you're a strength and conditioning coach and you're working with football, mm-hmm and you have a 160-pound running back, and you have a 330-pound linebacker. Well, right now, what's happening in weight rooms across the world is they're getting the same workouts, and they're getting the same percentage of one rep max in their training program. And the science says that that's not optimal. They should be doing vastly different things. They should be doing greatly different training volumes, meaning just like repetitions per week. These are the variables that coaches, uh, if you're getting a one-on-one relationship with a personal trainer, they modify those on a per-workout basis, on a day-to-day basis. But in the world of strength and conditioning, it's a lot less feasible to do that. So you end up getting kind of a, a less customized training routine in even pro sports than you do if you're getting a one-on-one experience at your neighborhood gym. So how did you get into this world? It's a great question, and I'll try to make the answer as short as possible. We did not know we were building for this audience when we started. In fact, when I began on this long journey, I was building for myself. So uh, I'm a competitive power lifter, and when I was training for the World Championships back in 2014, I knew I needed to get a lot better. I was getting into a much bigger pond. Mm-hmm. And I knew back then, because one of my close friends and mentors, Dr. Mike Zordos, uh, was doing some research with velocity-based training that that was a way for me to do that, to try to close that gap. And so to give you a quick explainer, and I kind of went into this a little bit already, but velocity-based training is, if you know how fast you're moving compared to last week, then 
that's really useful information to make training decisions. And so what we do is we make tools to objectively measure that so then we can give coaches the ability to say, go up based on speed rather than based on how I as a coach think that you moved or how you looked like you moved or how you're telling me it felt. So you can get a little bit more objective. And as the research moved forward over the past five years as we were building these types of products, you know, it's been more and more validated. A lot of the methodologies around velocity-based training, so the demand has grown. So initially, I thought I was building for myself. And what we did was, really early on, we built in a makerspace in Seattle with nothing but like a laser cutter and, you know, a few basic tools that we had in the makerspace. We started building them and we, we open sourced all the documents and we made an initial batch of about 100 units. We did a pre-order and back then we actually kind of scrounged together, I think it was like $15,000 or something. We had some early backers. We built them all before we opened up a pre-order and then we sold out and I think it was like four minutes, 100 devices. And then we shipped them all in the next month or so. And that was back in 2015. Back then, again, we thought we were mostly shipping to athletes. Mm -hmm. And since we got such a good reception, we built a V2 and then we built a V3. And over the course of the next couple of years, I think from V1 to V3, it was about 18 months. We found out that the vast majority of our traction was in sports teams and gyms. V3, open barbell V3 ended sometime, uh, I think it was late 2016 uh, was when we last shipped Open Barbell V3. And so for the past two plus years, we've been exploring exactly what it is that our customers, our team's customers were doing with these products, what they were trying to solve. And that's how Rep1 was born. We've done a lot of open source things at ThoughtBot. And one of the things that we have struggled with in the past is that transition from either a closed source product or a, you know, a commercial product to open source or the reverse, which you were just talking about going from open source to something else. Has that been a challenge for you or something that you've worried about? So not really. In fact, one of my co-founders uses um, one of your open source tools, Bourbon. Yeah. Um, he told me that before I, uh, I jumped on the, <laughs> on the chat today, but uh, we get a lot of questions about that particularly because I, I organize uh, Open Source NYC. It's the largest open source meetup group in, in New York City. And I get questions from people who, who say, I mean, aren't you worried that somebody's going to take your open source hardware and designs and, and compete with you? And you know, that's a license that we have out there. People can do that. They can manufacture and sell products and compete directly with us. And uh, it's, it's not something that we're worried about because initially with velocity-based training, we just wanted to fill a gap. Back when I started, the reason why we built these things is because you couldn't get a device that got you this data without spending two to $3,000. And so we open source it so people in college can build their own. And that's actually initially the mo most of the people who took advantage of the open source. And to this day, we still get messages from people. I got a, a message just yesterday about people asking about what kind of batteries they can use. And that doesn't concern me at all. And we see there's a, a company that we see overseas whose design looks curiously familiar to ours and <laughs> yeah. they're making them in large quantities and selling them. And that's fine. That's great. We don't think our novelty comes from the devices that we manufacture. Rep one is competitive in the marketplace because we've built a fantastic platform and that platform enables you to do things with the data that you otherwise could not do. And so if people want to contribute to the open source, we actually open sourced the, our initial app as well. But, you know, the early open barbell app just takes in data and allows you to just kind of collect that data. It doesn't really do much kind of deep analysis of it. 
but we open source that as well. And, and we see people kind of um, doing some interesting things with it. So yeah, it's not something that we worry about. It's, it's actually kind of cool. And in terms of the, the closed sourcing, we're, we're still contributing to the open barbell app mm-hmm. as we kind of take it and we uh, use it for the individual athlete app for rep one. Um, the coaching portal is an entirely new software product. It's vastly different than the early open barbell phone app. Well, it should be no surprise that I'm a big fan and believer of companies that not only build on top of open source that was contributed by others, but you know, find the the core or the the part of their product that can be open and build their own products and services on top of it. It's a model to be admired. Like you said, it's sort of counterintuitive and a lot of people are protective about that when uh, the reality is you can be more successful in the long run by building on top of open source that you create. I definitely agree. And yeah, it's counterintuitive. And there's also a lot of work that comes with open sourcing something. And it's something that a lot of people don't really think about. One of the reasons why we're not open sourcing our next generation Rep1 hardware is because in order for it to be useful as open source, especially hardware, it has to be something that people can feasibly build. And you know, we're going to have injection molded components, which means, you know, nobody's going to, what are they going to do with that? You know, you have one injection molded component and the entire thing doesn't work as an open source hardware project, or at least not as well. And so the work that it took to keep open barbell hardware open source meant that from the ground up, we had to make it from parts that were all accessible with common tools. And there are varying levels of feasibility along with that. And then of course, the documentation, we have an expansive GitHub wiki page on how to build it from the ground up because we didn't want to just release the open source documents, the bill of materials and uh, all the STL files for 3D printing and and things like that without giving them the actual realistic capability of building it and kind of iterating on it themselves. So I'm a software person. I think a lot of people who listen are, how do you get started with developing a hardware product, let alone an open source product? in the first place. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think the simplest way to describe it is that I didn't initially think that it was going to be a business. Mm-hmm. It started as a hobby. I was, um, so my background is I'm a mechatronics engineer. So a combination of mechanical and electrical engineering. And, you know, I was doing kind of a cubicle job uh, in aerospace and I had as kind of like a side hobby, uh, I was prototyping this velocity-based training device for my own training. And I put it all online as open source, mostly because I thought it was interesting and because people were asking. And then the first indication that this could be a business, we had a remote coach, one of the, actually the biggest remote coaches in strength, contact us to make them a bunch of devices. And we sat down and we said, okay, well, we're going to have to redesign this thing from the ground up if we're going to make them in bulk, because at that time it took like half a day to make each one. And we decided to do that. And again, it wasn't much of a business. It was just kind of like a, you know, at the time I had just moved to New York City with my now fiance. She got into NYU. And so I had this newfound time. And so I said, okay, a, a friend and I got together and we worked on a batch. We, we sold a hundred of them. You know, it obviously made some money. I guess the best way to describe it is it's kind of a lean startup concept called the concierge MVP, mm-hmm. where You start off by building something that is not scalable, barely repeatable, a lot of manual work, nothing automated, essentially just to learn your market and to learn who your customer is and to learn even if there's a business there. And so that's kind of how this whole thing started. 
And it took a while for us to really see that it could be a sustainable business. And because of that, Open Barbell V1 and V2 and V3 were all done in short run batches. So it was kind of like a maybe a Supreme-esque drop style thing before I even knew what that was, where we would just kind of build a lot of hype and then make you know a few hundred devices, drop them, and then we were done. And that was mm-hmm. it. Were you building the hardware in those initial versions off of any sort of platform or off-the-shelf components or how do you identify what pieces and and maybe it's just you know this is part of what you knew (laughs) how to do as a hardware person but sure that open barbell app uh, was built off react native and so um, we kind of utilized open source there and on the hardware side we just try to make everything off the shelf so even the springs that we used for the retraction mechanism, and to give you, I guess, a quick descriptor of what Open Barbell is and for the people listening, it's like a little soup can that you put on the ground, and it has a string that you could pull out and attach to whatever you're moving. And we use a, a rotary optical encoder to measure the displacement of the string, and then we do calculations to get things like velocity. And so that retraction mechanism has like a tape measure spring on it, and we literally took the springs out of tape measures, and we put... There's an old video on our Instagram that you could pull up of us going into Ikea and buying 500 tape measures. And the lady at Ikea, the cashier, told us that was the weirdest purchase she's ever gotten. <laughs> but yeah, and so you know, we, we try to do what we can in all aspects. We use kind of Red Bones skateboard bearings for our bearings. Um, you could buy those for, for cheap on eBay. Yeah, everything off the shelf. And is that what you're still doing today? So we're not. Uh, that has its limits. There's only so many yeah. tape measures you can take apart before you go insane. Right. And also, you know, the, the per unit cost doesn't scale very well. We're getting to the point where if, you know, rep one, we're trying to build several hundred a month and we're going to scale up from there. And there are things that need to be automated. And so this is where we start trying to build things that scale. So we had to source our own clock springs, which is one of the most difficult parts of rep one is, is sourcing that individual part. We have patent pending 3D sensing that we've been developing for a couple of years now. And that patent pending 3D sensing requires a little bit of custom work. And so we have things that can't be off the shelf by definition. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, we had to kind of specialize in. And how do you approach that? I assume when you're, when you're sourcing things nowadays, when I hear that, that means like figuring out where you can get that from in China or something like that. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. You know, these days, you're, you're paired up with a contract manufacturer, and a contract manufacturer is somebody usually overseas, although there's a lot of really good local contract manufacturers, but they build things and assemble things every day. That's what they do. And as a startup, you know, we do a lot of things, not just that. And so typically, a contract manufacturer is a little bit better at it than the startup is. And so they have a lot of really, really great connections for sourcing complex components. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, uh, Alibaba... It's been a huge resource as Alibaba's grown over the past, you know, five to 10 years. That helps a lot on the sourcing side. So along with the hardware, you had to build the software platform as well. You mentioned, you know, the app is built in React Native. As it was clear that you were going to have to build a software platform, what were the things that you thought about either as a company or as a team and and what you wanted to do and, and how you wanted to achieve it? How did you tackle those when I brought on my co-founder, John, and John is a fantastic developer, full stack, and as, or at least as close as you can get, and, and he's always learning new things as well. And when he joined, 
we had this vision early on. You know, we wanted to grow to accommodate these new customers that we found are buying our products. And so when it came to building our software, um, you know, the React Native app didn't come until version two. We initially thought at version two, we were building actually for consumers. And so we were thinking it was a, you know, mm-hmm. a remote coaching product for the consumer market. And so we did a lot of really interesting kind of Wizard of Oz testing. We built a fake app that had like an AI coach in it. And the AI coach was kind of like at the service of your human coach that was on the other end. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked much about, um, we also own a couple of training facilities in Brooklyn, but we utilized one of our training facilities where we just, we brought in somebody off the street, kind of somebody in our target demographic. And we gave them this kind of Wizard of Oz app that looked to them like it was fully fleshed out. Um, we had this AI version of your your human coach take you through a workout and respond to how the device is, is perceiving the quality of your training and then give you step-by-step guidance. And then in reality, I was around the corner, you know, peeking around a wall, looking at how they're doing. And then I was typing out the suggestions in real time. We built like a, a kind of a cool soundboard where you would press buttons on suggestions. And I would say how much to go up or down. And it worked. Nobody figured out that I was behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings. And so we used a lot of that really early information to guide how we were going to develop this app. As we built Open Barbell V2 and as we built Open Barbell V3, we learned more and more about our customer. We learned more and more about how these features worked in the deployed software. And we made the pivot late in Open, Open Barbell V3 towards teams just because we saw there was so much more enthusiasm there and the product was a lot simpler. And so I guess to answer your specific question, we used a lot of that early research as guidance Mm -hmm. to start our software initiatives. And at the same time, we had these ambitious goals. We still had this target market of kind of enthusiast power lifters. We knew wanted certain things, just like the kind of the raw data. And so we had to fulfill that as well. You mentioned in passing that you have these training facilities in Brooklyn. How did that come about? I mean, it's it's great because you can be, be right there with your customers, but how did that come about? You know, it, it's interesting because we start off probably different than you would think. When I first moved to New York City, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I couldn't do my nine to five anymore. And so I said, you know, you're going to the Big Apple. That's, you know, the land of opportunity. I'm coming with you. You know, I guess I was opportunistic, you know, eating nothing but ramen every day will do that to you. And (laughs) as I was figuring out what open barbell was and if it was going to be a business, I was doing powerlifting coaching on the side for a CrossFit gym and they were expanding pretty rapidly. And I think it was their third location that they were opening. There was this weird side area uh, that they didn't know what to do with. CrossFits are infamously called boxes because all you need is four walls. And so they came up Mm -hmm. to me and they said, hey, do you want to do anything with this side area? And at that time, again, I was a competitive powerlifter. New York City wasn't very friendly to us competitive powerlifters. And there was no 24-hour barbell gym at all in New York City. And that's what I had trained in my whole life. A good friend of mine, Chris in South Florida, who is now my business partner on the the facility side, he owned a 24-hour barbell gym. So I brought him on board while I was still building out Open Barbell and as we were still figuring out what Rep 1 would be. And we opened that first facility in part because we knew it would be well-received in the New York City market, but also because I needed an office. I needed to get my prototyping equipment out of my apartment. And we knew that it would be a really useful place for user testing. And it has been absolutely invaluable. I mean, the looks that I would have gotten at Blink 
to do my Wizard of Oz testing where I peeked around the corner and stared at some woman, you know, using a, a, a tethered soup can. Yeah, that would have been really, really difficult to pull off. So you have the in-person facilities that you're involved in. You have the work that you do at Rep One Strength and you're your CEO, you have the technical background as well. How do you juggle all of the different things that you're involved in and make sure that you're spending the right time at the right time on each of these things? The simple answer is hire good people. Hmm. You know, that took a while. I'm not saying that I didn't hire good people in the beginning. I'm saying that in the beginning, you can't even hire people. And so I I spread myself really thin. I worked a lot. You know, uh, I hate to quote Bill Gates. Um, It's kind of corny, but (laughs) Bill Gates had a, a recent interview, I think Business Insider, where he said that in the beginning, he never took weekends. He never took holidays and it was kind of frowned upon. He would like look out the window in the Microsoft parking lot and he would memorize everybody's license plates. And so he knew who would stay you know, over the weekend and who would work through holidays. And he, he almost kind of recommended that, mm-hmm. that, that kind of masochistic perspective for entrepreneurs because he thinks that you need to be that relentless in order for it to work. And I think personally, I guess I don't have a problem with that. And my fiance is a saint, you know, that, that she was able to kind of get through those early times where I would work past midnight every night, seven days a week for, for a long time. But I think that's kind of just what it took. But the focus was always on the tech company and where I could, I just automated everything with the gym. And the beauty of a 24-hour training facility is it's unstaffed and we have the right insurance for it, 24-hour unstaffed insurance. And so we have cameras everywhere. The concessions are on honor system. I do inventory every once in a while, things like that. Everybody had key codes. They let themselves in. You could sign up online, the, the whole nine. And so you know, my, my business partner ran all the financials. I was there working in person with my workshop. And so I was able to kind of do like a, like an 80, 20 split and still keep my focus on the tech company. I don't recommend Mm -hmm. it. This goes contrary to a lot of Silicon Valley kind of best practices, but I think for us, it ended up being really fruitful. Now in your work as CEO of this company, how do you balance the things you need to do as CEO with maybe the technical contributions that you want to make? Or are you out of that entirely? So it's very much kind of like a binary for me. It's like an on or off. I'm I'm either Mm -hmm. in business mode or engineer mode, or at least it has been lately. So we took a stab at at fundraising for a while. Um, I put a good year into not strictly fundraising, but we built a version of Rep1 that we could demo so we could begin a sales process. I put my salesman hat on for three or four months straight. For, I'm sure for a lot of people listening, a lot of engineers who dread the idea of doing sales, that's me as well. But the process was honestly one of the greatest periods of self-improvement for me professionally that I've ever done. The process of going through and trying to sell something and take money from people, particularly before the product is available, it's incredibly difficult to do. And if you can succeed at it, you learn a lot, a lot about your business, a lot about your product and a lot about your own weaknesses, which was incredibly useful. And so during that time, I was not an engineer. I couldn't have been. I was a project manager at times when we brought on contractors and, and consultants. But at, you know, fundraising and sales, those are very much individual full-time jobs. And to do them simultaneously is, is tough. And so you know, after the sales period, we launched our beta. And luckily, I have a great co-founder who's uh, our head of product, Logan. And he, he's running the beta and interfacing with all those teams that we sold. And then during that time... I started a fundraising process and, you know, long story short on that, you know, as it turns out, 
selling to sports teams doesn't give you the greatest perceived market. And so, you know, rather than try to keep convincing investors that training automation is going to be a revolutionary technology well into different verticals and well into different markets. We said, you know, we know how to do pre-orders. We've done three of them in the past. We know we have a lot of support. Email lists are hugely important. We've developed a a great email list and a great following. We've done pre-sales and we've done LOIs. And so we have like a four and a half million dollar pipeline of customers waiting for us. And so we, we knew we could do it bootstrapped. And so we just decided to do that. And so about a month ago, I flipped the switch back to engineer and I'm the best engineer I've ever been now. Like I've thought so much <laughs> about what I was going to do when I started engineering again that I'm like firing on all cylinders. I'm so happy to be done selling. I'm so happy to be done talking to investors. The product is just flying on the hardware side. It's, it's wonderful. So, so far for me, it's been very binary. It's been very kind of on or off and it's going to have to be mixed in the future. But, you know, I also think it's an important point to make that entrepreneurs and CEOs Although in the beginning, you have to be an engineer and you know, hopefully a good engineer. That's not going to get you to be a successful company. You need to be, the CEO needs to be really good at you know, a lot of different things in order for a company to work. And, and a lot of them are not necessarily skills you learn as an engineer. And so I'm hoping to hire engineers that are much better than myself so I could step off that and focus on like business development and, and working on our customer acquisition pipeline and, and the whole nine. So now that you've decided to bootstrap, which is really interesting and and admirable, how has that changed your growth plans, if at all? Well, the the reality of bootstrapping is that for us, and maybe it's different for non-hardware companies, or I mean, we're hardware and software, but maybe it's different for purely software companies. But for us, that means it's going to take us twice as long to get to the kind of sales numbers that it would have taken if we took funding. So, you know, let's say if we could sell 5,000 teams in two years with funding, it'll take us four years to sell 5,000 teams or, you know, something along those lines. I think it's a rough doubling of our, of our milestones, which has its pros and cons. I mean, I think you need to be in a market where you take longer to acquire that market share in order for bootstrapping to even be a viable decision. So that that's an important thing to pay attention to. But, you know, it, it touches every aspect of your business. Um, it touches our, our org chart, um, our hiring plan. It, it changes our prototyping process, our software development process. We've had to make a lot of sacrifices to our MVP, both on the hardware and the software side. It touches everything. But we've taken that into account and we come from a very scrappy background of building 500 hardware devices and building a Re- React Native open source app in a basement attached to a 24-hour training facility. And so we think we're in a good place to pull that off. Speaking of hiring plans, so what does your team look like now? You mentioned your you and your co-founder and, and who else is involved? Sure, yeah. So it's me and my uh, head of product, co-founder Logan, CTO, uh, lead developer, John. We have a contractor working with us now, Stephen on firmware and electrical engineering. And we have, and this is, I think, key, especially for bootstrapped, you know, lean startups is we have a, a great network of advisors and mm-hmm. those advisors help us kind of fill the knowledge gaps that you would otherwise fill with full-time engineers. So that's kind of where we're at now. I think having CTO, product designer, and myself as a subject matter expert in terms of like building a software product is about as lean as you can get. And still, I think I have the potential to, to launch a great MVP. You could launch an MVP without a product designer and you could launch an MVP without a subject matter expert. But I think those two things will greatly reduce the likelihood of your MVP being subpar. 
so we, we have a good core competencies team. And once we launch our pre-order soon, the date is yet to be announced. Um, we're looking to, to make some key hires. And, and who do you think those hires will be? What kind of roles? Yeah, well, I will say that I feel bad for my CTO, John, because he's building, you know, <laughs> he's building an iPad app and he's building a React web app right now. And he's still kind of maintaining the old open barbell app. And so he desperately needs help. So uh, on the on the software side, kind of a full stackish engineer, but mm-hmm. with, with a lot of experience and backend, you know, node, that's probably the first place we're going to go. And then from there, we need somebody on the hardware side, you know, although we're scaling our production, we're building a, a manufacturing cell in a local workshop in Brooklyn. Final assembly is going to happen there. A lot of uh, sub-assemblies are going to happen there. So we're bringing on a, a manufacturing engineer and a, and a kind of really skilled mechanical engineer to head off that kind of really ambitious project of building a manufacturing cell for kind of a mechatronics mechanical electrical device. And where in your roadmap, if at all, do you see sort of non-technical hires, maybe sales or marketing coming into play? So we've gotten a lot of advice here, especially in the fundraising process from venture capital people. Although I've started a couple companies, I have not seen as many companies start, not by a long shot, as some of these VCs that I have spoken to. And so they, they recommend, I think it's it's very popular these days to bring on an early marketing hire. I don't think it's appropriate to call them growth until you're, you're a little bit later in your company, but they mm-hmm. should probably have growth type skills. But uh, an early marketing hire who can do maybe a little bit of sales is going to be important early on. One of the interesting things with us, and one of the reasons why we can go bootstrapped is we don't need to hire a fleshed out sales team. Although we will be doing a lot of sales ourselves, mm-hmm. and it's kind of probably going to be one of my main jobs. We're not going to be able as a bootstrap company to afford the type of sales team that a venture backed company would afford. Right. You know, luckily for us, again, we, we have a lot of proven experience in, in doing pre-orders for these teams, which is, it's rare to do B2B pre-orders, but we pulled it off a few times. And so we're, we're going to be selling direct on our website. And then, you know, we talk to a lot of pro teams and they need a little bit more concierge service. And so that'll primarily be my job. And so I'll handle that as long as I can, uh, maybe until I, I pull all of my hair out and then I'll try to, I'll try to hire somebody to, to manage sales. As you look ahead, you know, you're working on this MVP now, whether it's with that or, or just anything on your, like, what's your, what's your biggest concern? What do you, what do you think is the next big challenge for rep one strength? There's a lot of interesting challenges coming. I mean, I think one of the things that everybody is concerned about every, every CEO, every startup founder is concerned about is how their MVP will be perceived. Mm. because I think it's well known these days that perfect is the enemy of good. If you're ready to launch, then you've launched too late, right? Mm-hmm. That is known. And, and every entrepreneur should have that in the back of their head. And so the reality that we face now is you're releasing an MVP that is probably not ready for the average customer. The bleeding edge customers might like it, but are you going to get mean emails? Are things going to break and people are going to be upset at you? Um, the answer is probably yes, but we have to be okay with that. And we have to be able to kind of move forward step by step and make it into a great product. I mean, I think Hello Games is going to go down as one of the best examples of how to do this really well. They started off with really poor reviews. They overpromised and underdelivered in their MVP, I think maybe to kind of like a record extent, but they worked <laughs> tirelessly to kind of deliver on what they promised and people love them for it. And so it just goes to show you if you can go from where Hello Games started to where they are now, 
then we can do that as well. I just have to calm down when I look at our roadmap and when I look at what our MVP is and I have to say, okay, our early customers are going to love us for who we are and then we'll get there. You know, we'll, we'll build the features that they like so that, you know, when we get past our low hanging fruit customers, they'll be ecstatic as well. Jordan, I wish you and Rep One Strength the best of luck with that. I'm sure me and the rest of the audience looks forward to following along. If we want to do that or get in touch with you, where's the best places to do that? Sure. Yeah. You can just go to reponestrength.com. You know, again, the launch date is is yet to be announced. Yeah. But that website will have an overhaul soon. Or social media at Rep One Strength. Sign up for our email list if it's interesting to you. And yeah, and I, I don't know how many strength and conditioning coaches listen to this podcast, but if you are, feel free to reach out. Awesome. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.